Psalm 105 is a, a fairly long psalm, but to, to orient us to what we're looking at, um, in verse 104, if you're the kind of person who is looking for the, what am I supposed to do, in Psalm 105, verse 1 through 4 is the answer. The psalmist begins by uh, giving some commands. Now, they're joyful commands, but if you're looking for what does this passage of Scripture tell me to do, well, it's front-ended. So it's verse 1 through 4. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him, sing psalms to him, talk of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those rejoice who seek the Lord. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face forevermore. So there are your commands. And really, uh, the, the commands are given in the first verse. After the first verse, you're kind of told how to obey the commands. But the commands are these. There's, there's really three with a broad stroke. Uh, the first one is give thanks to the Lord. So God is commanding you to be thankful, to look at him, and, and realize that God has blessed you and respond in thanksgiving. Uh, it is a command against a bitter heart. It is a command against a selfish heart. It is a command to, to look at God and, and give him thanksgiving. After that is a command to call upon the Lord. When John Calvin wrote a a catechism for the church at Geneva, the first section of his catechism asks, how do you know and honor God aright? And the answer has four propositions, but three of them are different ways of saying, I will depend on God. I will not depend upon my own strength. I will depend upon what God gives. I will depend upon his guidance. I will depend on God. I will be dependent, not on man, but I will be dependent on God. And this is a way to rightly worship God. It strikes at that very prideful streak in man that says, I won't turn to God for help because... Uh, that would limit and humble me, which is exactly what God wants to do. Um, God is worshipped when you depend on him. Do you feel pushed to your last ember? Well, actually, that's where worship kind of begins. You should call upon God, says the psalmist. But notice the position of the command. The psalmist does not start by saying, call upon the Lord, He starts by saying, be thankful to the Lord your God. And then the second one is, call upon the Lord. If you begin with thankfulness, if your attitude is one that expresses your knowledge of how good God has been to you, then seeking the Lord in his his, uh, benevolence is not a selfish thing, but it is a thing of worship. So... Be thankful to God, pray about stuff that you need. But that's second. And then thirdly, make known his deeds among the people. So that's verse one, and you got your three commands. Be thankful to him, look for all your good from him, 
and then be evangelistic. Now, this is the Old Testament. You don't tend to think about the Old Testament being evangelistic, but we're going to, at the end of this sermon, hear a verse from Deuteronomy, which is clearly, you're supposed to be evangelistic. God has put his people in the world to declare the glory and good of God, and here in the psalm, the psalmist says, make God known among the peoples, especially his deeds. And the psalmist is going to repeat that detail. He's going to say, make people know what God has done. So here, evangelism has to do with acts that God has done, and people need to know those acts. God has acted in the past. Uh, it's, it's a good news that you're sharing that he's done these things, and it glorifies God to tell people about them. So there are your three commands, and then from verse 2 to 4, uh, you're told how to do it. You should sing to him. You should talk of him. This both applies to thankfulness, and it applies to evangelism, applies to calling upon him. You've got to talk to God Talk to God in song, talk to God in words, talk to the world in the same way. Uh, Let the world hear your singing of God, let the world hear your words about God. Glory in His name. We are in a culture that is literally losing its mind over the issue of identity. Uh, You hear about identity politics and the, the... the TV is just a wash, and people talking about, what is my identity? Well, here the psalmist says, your identity should be in the Lord. Who are you? Well, you belong to God. You should glory in his name. You wear his name. He has laid it upon you if you belong to Christ. You should glory and find your identity in him. Um... You should seek the Lord with a rejoicing heart. Uh, Praise and thanksgiving are so intertwined, you can't really pull them apart. Your heart should be filled with joy in the Lord. Uh, You should seek his strength and his face. That goes back again to call upon him. God's strength allows you to do what you're doing. Um, Seek him and seek him alone. Uh, The great and principal reason is in verse 5, remember his marvelous works which he has done, his wonders and the judgments of his mouth. He's mentioned this now twice, and he applies it now as the reason for all the things you're doing. God has done things that are worthy of his praise. God has done things that are worthy to tell the nations. What exactly is it that the psalmist has on his mind? What has God done? Well, in verse 8 through 10, the psalmist lays out what principally he's talking about when he talks about God's works. He remembers his covenant forever the word which he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac, 
and confirmed it to Jacob for a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan as the allotment of your inheritance. If you don't know how important the covenant is, you can't really understand the Psalms. The Psalms are all about God keeping his word and establishing his covenant. And here the psalmist has been talking about the works of God, the works of God, tell the world what God has done, do all of this because of what God has done. What has God done? Well, he has established a covenant with his people, and that covenant finds a tangible expression in him giving them the land of Canaan. It's the promised land. It's where God promised he would be worshipped aright, where he would meet with his people. He, he would make a promise that there would be a, a, a central place in the land where they would be able to gather at his presence in the temple. God has given them the promised land. That is the central work that this psalm is about. Be thankful to God, call upon his name, make his deeds known among the people. Why? Because God has done wondrous works. What are they? God has entered into covenant with us and specifically given us the promised land that is a tangible expression of his covenant. Okay. Why is that so significant? Well, it has to do with a number of things, but one of them is we weren't exactly the kind of people you would think would get a nation. The psalmist begins to talk about our forefathers at the time when this promise is being made, and he says, to you I will give the land of Canaan as the allotment of your inheritance when they were few in number, indeed very few, and strangers in it. So God has extended his holy arm and he has given a promised land to a bunch of scruffy people who aren't really a bunch. It's actually not a lot of people, and if you had been looking at the world at that time, you would not have thought this group of wanderers in the desert would own a nation. Um, In fact, they are vagabonds. Verse 13 says, they went from one nation to another, from one kingdom to another people. So these are, these are wandering nomads in the desert. They've got tents, they herd flocks, and there's just not a whole lot of them. And so if you were dwelling in the city of Mari in that time, or if you were uh, from the Akkadian cities, you would consider these people to be of no account and to be of no significance. But God intervened for them. We read, when they went from one nation to another, from one kingdom to another people, he permitted no one to do them wrong. Yes, he rebuked kings for their sake, saying, Do not touch my anointed ones, and do my prophets no harm. We've been working through the book of Genesis in the midweek Bible study, and 
At one point in the book of Genesis, in chapter 35, uh, we read these words. It is verse 5 and 6. And they journeyed, and the terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them. And they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. Now, why would people be pursuing these wandering uh, nomads? Well, it's because in the chapter before, they've made some truly bad decisions, and they've ended up killing an entire town under kind of shady circumstances. And people being what they are, uh, that's going to draw retribution. But God intervened for his sinful people, God intervened for his not very wise people and caused the fear of God to fall upon them so that his people would have no harm done to them, even though his people were very few and very insignificant looking. God was at work. God was protecting his people, even when his people were in sin and honestly were to blame God was righteous to his covenant, protecting us even then. There were great elements against us. Our forefathers wandering in the desert were in the desert. And the desert is no easy place to live. If you can choose where to live, don't choose a desert. There's a lot of better places. The desert will kill you. There were great nations against us. As we have gone through the book of Genesis, we have seen the the forefathers of the church uh, overwhelmed, overshadowed by the magnificent power of Egypt. If you had looked at the world in that day and looked for who would be significant, you would not have said it would be the children of Abraham. You would have said... Look at magnificent Egypt. Look at its power. Look at its glory. Look at its its written text. Look at its philosophy. This is what will be significant. So this tiny group of people of no count, fighting to survive in a desert, overshadowed by Egypt, that is what God chose to work with and give the land of Canaan to. And God was indeed at work. Verse 16 through 24 really emphasize God doing things. Moreover, he called for a famine in the land. He destroyed all the provision of bread. He sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave, they hurt his feet with fetters. He was laid in iron until, that ti- until the time that his word came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. The ruler of the people let him go free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions to bind his princes at his pleasure and teach his elders wisdom. Reading the Joseph's account, if you don't know what's going to happen, if this is your first time through the Bible, you think this desert wanderer is absolutely messed over. 
He has some visions that he tells his brothers. His brothers respond by dumping him in a well. He ends up a slave in Egypt. Uh, you think this is a very unlucky man who has had his lick. And that's what it would have looked like. But the psalmist says God was at work. He was intending to give our forefathers the promised land. He sends a famine to do that. And ahead of that famine, he sends a man into Egypt in a way that nobody would have expected this to be powerful or glorious. And that man ends up by God's hand and not the work of man in any way by God's hand, ends up being second to Pharaoh in Egypt. God is working for his people. And then as we go further, Israel also came into Egypt, and Jacob dwelt in the land of Ham. He increased his people greatly and made them stronger than their enemies. Totally by the hand of God, because he was intending on keeping his covenant, the people of Abraham, the sons of Israel, end up in Egypt. They end up being blessed by Pharaoh. They end up growing and multiplying. And suddenly this people that looks of no account now might look a little bit more of account. Because it looks like they're going to settle into Egypt. They're going to be a fixture in Egypt. They're going to be Egyptian. Uh, the world is going to be about being Egyptian. Here is where they will be blessed. Well, it turns out that Egypt is a blessing for a while. God is not done yet, and God is still acting. And God is intending on keeping his covenant. This is why we should praise him and thank him. This is why we should call upon him. This is why we should tell the people he's, he's going to keep his covenant. He does. God continues to act, and the very next thing we read is, he turned their heart, that is the Egyptians, he turned their heart to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. I thought this was about the good stuff God did that we should praise and bless him for. It absolutely is. God is at work. He is keeping his covenant. He intends to give his people the promised land. They're in Egypt, they've multiplied, they've been, been blessed in many ways. Now God turns the hearts of the Egyptians to hate them and, quote, to deal craftily with them. Uh, the Hebrew is kind of emphatic. It talks about cheating. It talks about harming. It talks about abusing. God works. And he makes your enemies hate you and abuse you and cheat you. Praise him, thank him, depend upon him, and tell the nations about him. Does it have an off chord? It really shouldn't. God is at work. And God is at work when it looks like you're being delivered from a famine by miraculous hand. And God is at work when your Egyptian neighbor hates you for no reason. When you are cheated and abused, that's not happening under God's radar. God is at work. And he is at work at this point in the psalm. He makes the Egyptians hate the, the Israelites. He causes them to abuse them. 
because Egypt isn't the final end of this story. The promised land is. God keeps working. And God goes to war with the greatest nation on earth. He sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, who he has chosen. They performed his signs among them and wonders in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made it dark, and they did not rebel against his word. Now that's an interesting verse, and there's a... uh, in, In the manuscripts that come down to us, there is some question about what this verse means. In the Masoretic text, which is what our, most of our Bibles are translated from, uh, the reference is to darkness uh, and the land itself. God said, become dark, and the darkness said, okay, and became dark, and the land said, I'll let it be dark, God commanded. But in a huge number of manuscripts that come down to us in Hebrew, and also in Greek and Aramaic, it says... He sent darkness and made it dark, and they did rebel against his word. And if that was the actual original text, what the psalmist is doing is he's setting up a picture where when God sends darkness, he's referring to the darkness that comes, but he's really using the concept of darkness as all of the plagues. If God is sending frogs on you, if God is giving water turned into blood for you to drink, that's kind of dark. And so the psalmist would be using the darkness there kind of as a symbol of everything God does. And he says, you know, God smote them, and the Egyptians rebelled anyway. The power of God came flying down upon the Egyptians, and they did not immediately say, you know, I see your point. God was at war, and man fought back, and the battle went on. He sent darkness and made it dark, and they did or did not rebel against his word. He turned their waters into blood and killed their fish. Their land abounded with frogs, even in the chambers of their kings. He spoke, and there came swarms of flies and lice in all their territory. He gave them hail for rain and flaming fire in their land. He struck their vines also and their fig trees and splintered the trees of their territory. He spoke, and locusts came, young locusts without number, and ate up all the vegetation in the land and devoured the fruit of their ground. He also destroyed all the firstborn of their land, the first of all their strength. What part of any of that did the children of Israel do? The answer, of course, is none of it. God had decided to go to war, and when God goes to war, you don't actually have to help him. God is absolutely capable of going to war and bringing the most powerful nation on earth to absolute dissolution. And that is what happens. And in fact, it happens so dramatically and so gloriously and so God-honoringly that when you go further into the history books, like into 1 Samuel, where we are, uh, you will see uh, the Philistines still talking about it 100 years, of, years later. We're, we're fighting the Israelites, but we better be careful because their God absolutely did a number on Egypt. 
Now, they get the details a little wrong, but, you know, let a hundred years go by and that happens. They're still talking about God smashed Egypt. God brought them to Egypt. Egypt was for a time of blessing, but it was not to be permanent. And when God wanted them to come out, he brought them out and he fought Egypt over it and he slammed Egypt. There is no power on earth that can stand against the hand of God when God wants to smash them. And so we go on, we read further on in the psalm, um, he also brought them out with silver and gold. There was none feeble among his tribes. Egypt was glad when they departed, for fear of them had fallen upon them. Egypt had been a blessing. Egypt had felt like a curse. Egypt had been grievous. Egypt had nearly killed them. But the purpose of God was to bless them, to bring them out with silver and gold, and for Egypt to be humbled and not be a threat to them. And God knew what he was doing. He keeps his covenant. This is what he promised. It probably was not what the people of God thought was going to happen. When God promised them the promised land, they probably thought it would be a little easier to get there. But God was keeping his word, and when they came out of Egypt, they were carting silver and gold and wealth. They weren't stumbling. They had strength. God had given them strength under their afflictions. I don't know if you caught that, but the psalmist said uh, God made them strong in the land of Egypt. You don't become strong by living on easy street. You become strong by affliction. God had made them strong when they were coming out. Nobody was stumbling, and the Egyptians were scared to death. And they were on their way to the promised land, but they still didn't quite get there. The psalmist then begins to talk about the 40 years where they kind of have to wander around before they go there, and he emphasizes the blessing of God even in the wilderness wanderings. He spread a cloud for a covering, and fire to give light in the night. The people asked, and he brought quail, and satisfied them with the bread of heaven. He opened the rock, and water gushed out. It ran in the dry places like a river. In the 40 years in the desert, they were technically under God's punishment. The psalmist doesn't really address that here, but we know history. And yet the psalmist during that time period emphasizes God's provision and God's leading. He guided them in the desert. There was a pillar of fire. There was a cloud. It was a manifestation of God. And the people followed God. And God was faithful to lead them. Just like he had led them to Egypt, just like he led them out of Egypt, he led them around the desert, and uh, the emphasis on God leading, when you go to the books of Moses, it's kind of significant. Listen to how Moses describes the cloud and the fire. This is from the book of uh, Numbers, and it's chapter 9, beginning at verse 15. Now on the day that the tabernacle was raised up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony, 
From evening until morning it was above the tabernacle like the appearance of fire. So it was always the cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. Whenever the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle, after that the children of Egypt, the children of Israel would journey. And in the place where the cloud settled, there the children of Israel would pitch their tents. At the command of the Lord, the children of Israel would journey, and at the command of the Lord, they would camp. As long as the cloud stayed above the tabernacle, they remained encamped. Even when the cloud continued long, many days above the tabernacle, the children of Israel kept the charge of the Lord and did not journey. So it was when the cloud was above the tabernacle a few days, according to the command of the Lord, they would remain encamped, and according to the command of the Lord, they would journey. So it was when the cloud remained only from evening until morning. When the cloud was taken up in the morning, then they would journey, whether by day or by night, whether the cloud was taken up, they would journey. Whether it was two days, a month, or a year, that the cloud remained above the tabernacle, the children of Israel would remain encamped and not journey. But when it was taken up, they would journey. At the command of the Lord, they remained encamped, and at the command of the Lord, they journeyed. They kept the charge of the Lord at the command of the Lord by the hand of Moses. Did Moses mention that God was leading? Uh, did, Did he say it enough? The children of Israel saw him smash Egypt. The children of Israel ended up in the desert. And they got 40 years of learning that God knows what he's doing and he will lead you. He will be with you at night. He will be with you in the day. He will lead you through the desert, which you were hoping to to not have to be a wanderer in anymore. He will lead you there, and you will follow. And if he says, I'm staying here for a while, you'll stay. And if he says, we're moving, you're going to move. And that's how this works. The psalmist is emphasizing the faithfulness of God. He is emphasizing the power of God. And he is emphasizing the strangeness of God. Fire, cloud, quail descending upon the camp, water gushing out of a rock. Seem a little odd to you? Probably should, because it's something God can do and you can't. He had promised to keep his covenant. He was going to keep his covenant. Nothing in all the world will keep God from keeping his covenant. But he's not going to ask you how he's going to keep his covenant. He is going to keep it as he will keep it, and he will show you his provision, he will show you his care, and he will not ask you how you want it done. No man on earth could have spoken to God and said, I have a great idea. Why don't you take our struggling forefathers down to Egypt by way of the Joseph account? I had this wonderful idea for a guy. Let's Let's let him go to jail and then go to jail again and then finally end up a prince. Oh, and while the people are wandering around the desert, why don't you send them quail? And why don't you send them your presence by fire and cloud? Why don't you, why don't you make water flow out of a rock? There was not a human being on earth who could ever have suggested this to God. It originated in God's mind, and he knew what he was doing. And he was keeping his covenant.
And the end result is that, uh, well, verse 45 of our psalm, uh, turn over page here. Why did all this happen? Well, uh, he remembered his holy promise, and back in verse 42, and Abraham his servant. Did I, remember, did I mention that God is a covenant-keeping God? Is that something I've emphasized? I don't know if I've said it enough, but it's in Scripture. It's here. And the psalmist goes back over it again and again. Why did God do all this? Well, he remembered his holy promise and Abraham his servant. He brought out his people with joy, his chosen ones with gladness. He gave them the lands of the Gentiles, and they inherited the labor of the nations. And this was all for a purpose, that they might observe his statutes and keep his laws Praise the Lord. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, Pastor, you said that every command was at the beginning. Isn't that a command? It is not. It is what God was working to have happen. He gave them the land of the nations. He did all this so that verse 45 would happen, that they might observe his statutes and keep his laws. That's what God wanted to have happen And that is one of the things that the psalm is telling you to praise God about. He gave you the promised land so you could obey him, so you could keep his laws. You really couldn't do it in Egypt. You couldn't do it in Ur of the Chaldeans. The promised land let you worship and obey him as you should. Praise him that he brought you to a place you can do that. We're not in Judea. We are in Kentucky. And the idea of Kentucky being the promised land would really have changed the Old Testament story immensely. Uh, What does this have to do with us? Well, as you know, uh, everything in in the Hebrew Bible, everything in what we call the Old Testament, is a type and a shadow of the covenant of Christ. Everything there is about Christ. That's true of the promised land as well as anything else. God gave the promised land, and he is talking to the people of Christ. Um, How's that work? Well, if you listen to the music of the Christian church right after the Civil War, you will become overwhelmingly convinced the promised land is heaven. Because every hymn that the, the Christian church writes from... 1865 to about 1920, um, basically emphasizes, I'll be happy when I'm dead. I'm crossing over Jordan land, I'm, I'm crossing the river, I'm going into the promised land, thanks be to God, I'm leaving the world. Is that what the promised land is a type and shadow of? Uh, among the, uh, among the, the black slaves in America, uh, the promised land was also used in their music, but they used it in a very different way. They talked about crossing the Jordan and entering the promised land, and for them, it was a type and a shadow of freedom. We are enslaved, we're not our own, but God is going to act, and someday we're going to be free men, and people are going to treat us as equal, 
praise the Lord when we cross Jordan and we're in the promised land. Fact of the matter is, the Negro spiritual is closer than those I'll be happy when I'm dead songs. The promised land. Um, let, me, let me ask you a few questions. In the promised land, uh, was there any conflict in the promised land? When, when the people crossed into it, was there any warfare, blood, death, gore, burning cities, anything like that? A bunch of it. And that was when they entered the land. Was there any corruption that happened in the promised land? A lot. Was there any idolatry that happened in the promised land? Bunches. In heaven, will there be conflict, corruption, or idolatry? None. So it doesn't look like the promised land is a type and shadow of heaven. It's a type and shadow of conversion and living in this world and serving God here. Heaven is heaven, but if you go to Ephesians chapter 6, when Paul quotes the third commandment, he says, Now honor your father and mother, for this is the first commandment with a promise, that it may be well with you. And then when he quotes it, he doesn't say that you may live long in the land. He says that you may live long on the earth. The earth. Kentucky. China, that you may live long here. See, it's the promise of the promised land, but the Lord Jesus Christ rules over everything. His, his banner of ownership is over all the universe. There is no place in the universe he is not the legitimate ruler of. And the promised land was always a type and shadow of what is really real, and that is Jesus is Lord of everywhere. And if you are his citizen, if you are converted, you're in the promised land. You are sitting in the promised land this very moment because the Lord Jesus Christ has drawn you out of the nations. He has taken hold of you and brought you to the place where you can rightly serve him, rightly worship him, and fight the wars of the Lord. Because there's plenty of Canaanites, there's plenty of Moabites, there is, is, is plenty of sin and depravity to fight against. But you are in the promised land of God, and you can serve him aright. And that is what this psalm is about. O Israel, praise the Lord, be thankful to him, uh, call upon him in your need, uh, make known to the peoples what he has done, because he has gathered a group of people that no one on earth would have thought would be significant. Anybody around you look like they would be significant? I mean, really, if you think about them? We are a congregation filled with people that the world would think these are, well, they think we're very quirky, but nevertheless, we're not that, we're not that significant. Uh, God gathered us. Was it an easy process for you to be converted? Have you walked to this place in ease and there's been no battles or struggles? You've gone to Egypt. You've seen Egypt destroyed. You've seen God's power draw a, an unlikely group of people to himself, 
and put them in the promised land, you have seen God work miracles that you might be a saved person. And verse 45 would be true of you that you might observe his statutes and keep his laws. You weren't saved by that, you were saved to that. And God has literally moved heaven and earth to save someone as odd and insignificant as you and me. This is our story. The typology is about what God does in Jesus Christ. He has brought us into his will. He has brought us into the safety of his kingdom. He protects us and preserves us and leads us that we might serve him. This is miraculous. Be thankful to him. Call upon him in your need and declare to the nations what he has done.